Yes, let's do it. I am excited. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to Tech Amplified. Today, we are joined by Emily Savolainen. <laughs> You're laughing at me. The founder, CEO, and you know, it says it on your LinkedIn profile. It says troublemaker. I want to know what that means as well at Insmo. Thank you so much for doing this. It's great to have you on the show. Talk to me about the troublemaker thing. Why are you a troublemaker? Uh, great to be here, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for inviting. Um, yeah, about that. Um, I think when we started Insmo, then we had pretty wild ideas what uh, we can do in insurance, especially in uh, delivering instant and amazing and delightful ins insurance experiences. And we have always had those wild ideas, um, how the technology could impact those experiences and often well, as we operate as an MGA, we have to go to insurance companies to pitch our ideas, to partner with us, and 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 we're pitching our business cases and what we want to do. And often they tell me that, um, oh no, this cannot be done. And then I'm like, watch me. And and this is where where I kind of uh, got this got this name of troublemaker in insurance. This has to be one of your favorite things when somebody tells you this cannot be done. Am I wrong? Yes. Yes, exactly. I love it as well. And tell me, where do all these wild ideas come from, right? Because you're not an insurance person by history. You weren't always in the insurance yeah. industry, right? Right. So I think um, that's the key here. Also, a lot of people that we hire uh, do not have previous ex insurance experience. And, and this is where the most innovative ideas actually come from, because we often don't know what the restrictions are. And we think of solutions without creating 10 different problems around those uh, solutions. So right. we try to find like-minded people. And also when we hire like specialists from, from the insurance industry, we find people who also think creatively, think innovatively. They know that, you know, where can we play? But they can also think of solutions outside of the box and try to uh, figure out what will be the solutions to bring something amazing to the market rather than, you know, uh, jeopardizing great ideas with 20 different problems, how it cannot be done. The more you troublemake, does it get easier for you as an MGA in your interactions with insurers and reinsurers to actually be able to build the products that you want to build? Yes, uh, because now we have been on the market uh, a little bit over six years right. and we have already shown what can be done. So uh, in that sense, we have built a, a sort of like a trust or credibility in the industry and among different players. And I'm really glad to see that uh, several insurance companies are also establishing their smaller units um, that are all about innovation and underwriting innovation. So we're getting there. We are getting like-minded in insurance companies, but of course the whole industry has a long road to go. Do you feel like the market is moving in your direction, if you know what I mean? Where maybe six years ago you were just like, oh, I can't talk to these people. They're never going to listen to me. And now they're more like, Let's bring in Miri. Maybe she's got some good ideas. Do you feel like it's flipping a little bit? No. <laughs> and, really? Um, to be honest, yeah, to be honest, it used to be better like five years ago because I, I think five years ago we saw this first insure tech wave. Right. And what I mean by that is that uh, 
there were a lot of uh, big in insurance companies and, and incumbents that were kind of afraid that, you know, if they don't now jump into every collaboration with insurtechs, they're going to miss something great, they're missing the opportunities and yeah. so on and so forth. And um, I can see right now, I think in the past one or two years, that this kind of enthusiasm has passed for for some period of time, which also means that there's not so much innovation happening right now. I do predict that there will be a second wave, but it will be way more different than the first one. So the insurers will be much more cautious than they were uh, five years ago. And it's actually, currently, it's actually a little bit sad to see that the innovation, in my opinion, is 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 slowing down compared really? to what it used to be. Yeah, um, there is these new emerging technologies around, and and um, you know there's so much that insurance could benefit from. But uh, if you look at least like the past year, there's not so many new insurtech initiatives popping up. Right, the the market is pretty dry. This is what I hear from the incumbents. This is what I hear from the VCs and every, everybody. And it's not just insurtech, it's fintech in general. Maybe it's the, you know, overall macroeconomic uh, reasons um, or or anything related to that. But um, it is pretty slow right now. Um, and I'm afraid it will last for the next one or two years. What do you think sure. caused that change? I mean, if you think it's different than it was five years ago, what do you think changed in the last five years that made incumbents less enthusiastic, right, about yeah. this type of technological change that's coming through insurtechs. Mm -hmm. So uh, people got burned. I mean, uh, jumping into a new venture, of course, it's a leap, leap of faith, um, collaborating with uh, startups and, and uh, tech providers, of course, like, I think, you know, maybe they didn't realize that you know um out of 10 different initiatives one might be successful and which means that nine you're throwing into the trash and this is this is part of the game and yeah. i think a lot a lot of uh, partnerships uh, got burned and now they're much more cautious i also feel it like when I go pitch to incumbents for a new and innovative product, then it has to be um, with a significant business case with already, you know, partnership signs and so on and so forth. I mean, we are today in a position where we can deliver that. But if I was um, a, a first year startup, I couldn't deliver this. So we both have to take some sort of a leap of faith. And incumbents today are not so eager to take this leap of faith anymore. It's, it's a really interesting point. I'm super curious if you think that it was better for you to start six years ago and that it would be harder to start today, right? Because now, because you've been around for six years, you do, you have built up that credibility. You do, people do trust you. So that even if it's harder now, do you feel like it would be harder to start something from scratch today than it was five or six years ago? Definitely. And I think uh, this is also the reason I, why we don't see so many startups popping up in insurtech right now because usually insurtech needs some sort of like a partnerships with the incumbent sure. so they are not capable of uh, uh, writing their own risks from day one so they have to sell to someone right and usually yeah. these are uh, corporates incumbents and so on and if they don't establish those partnerships like in the first like months or, or or a year of their operations they don't get funded uh they don't have business there's there's nothing definitely much much more uh difficult 
do you feel like the like do you feel the impact of this funding decline that you're talking about yeah absolutely fundraising today is um, like the most difficult it has ever ever been right. um and uh, we are today looking very much at the bottom lines the burns when are you going to break even um for companies who in the beginning of 2023 or late 22 already created their strategies right. towards breaking even uh in the next i don't know nine, nine to 12 months then these companies are successful fundraising at least in europe right now but new ventures um super difficult but we are seeing right now um a new method of uh, funding popping up which is venture debt Okay. So, and uh, we see several venture debt companies being currently established and raising funds. And there is now, let's say, a new mechanism uh, on the town and which gives um, better alternatives also for the founders that, you know, maybe you don't need to raise the equity because equity is always most uh, um, expensive way. Giving away shares is always the most expensive way to, to raise dilutive, capital. It's dilutive, yeah. You don't want to dilute as much as you possibly can, right? Right, and uh, now you can fund your your company with uh, um, maybe a mixture of equity and venture debt because usually venture debt matches the investments of of your shareholders or new investors. So it's a great alternative that is not very much used right now. But I already see like so many venture debt companies and offers popping up. The money is there. The game has changed. There was a big trend a few years ago in the e-commerce markets where they would fund revenue, right? Mm -hmm. So, And they would create a structure for the debt where it would fund the revenue. So matter, no matter what your revenue was, if it was $10 million or a million dollars, they would just take a percentage of revenue no matter what. Is that also happening in the insure tech space? Yeah, it is. So I'm not doing not only just revenue-based financing, but also growth loans. Um, right. So that are not so much maybe... Um, related to your revenues, because sometimes you want to fuel the growth by you know, opening up a new market and it's it's an investment, so it doesn't deliver revenue immediately. Yeah, there is several mechanisms uh, available. And uh, yeah, I would encourage everybody to, to look them up and not only be dependent on um, equity financing. I think there's a secular change taking place in the way that startups are being funded. And I'm really curious what you think about this, that there's this a little bit sort of anti-venture capital culture getting built because of the yes. necessity to grow in a way that's maybe not as healthy as you'd like it. Do you feel that as well? Yeah, absolutely. The whole game of fundraising has changed. Um, you don't raise so easily like several million euros anymore just with the pitch deck, right? That it you have to like show it. traction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have to show traction. You have to show like real numbers, real business. Um, no more hot air, and uh, also like pretty aggressive uh, debates and negotiations over the valuations because it's not anymore that you know when it used to be like valuation is something you know abstract that is being agreed between between the founders and uh, the investors right. so it's all about you know nego negotiation and agreements and so on and so forth now it's getting more like 
mathematical. It's like, you know, guys, you are earning uh, 1 million per year. Right. You cannot ask 100 million valuation. It doesn't make any sense. It's 100 times multiple. Everybody's talking about revenue multiples and, and valuations. So the negotiations over, over valuations are getting also pretty tough right now. Do you think that some of that is because the insurtech focused VCs are also struggling? Um, to be honest, I don't know because what my feeling is is there not just with insurtech but also fintech in general is that the money is still there, right? Funds do have capital to deploy, right? But what they don't want to end up with is funding another story where money is burned to uh, you know catch people in in B two C, you know, burning a lot of money, right. high customer acquisition costs, uh, and so on and so forth. This is not being tolerated tolerated anymore they want to see sustainable business models meaning that you know how you're going to make money from this customer just with your first sale um, this is also like our strategy has been six years to acquire customers b2b or b2b2c um, like if we traditionally spend minimum 400 euros to acquire a customer via google ads or facebook ads then with b2b and b2b2c we see that uh, we can be profitable already with selling one policy. So the CAC is like 15, sometimes 20 times lower than doing directly B2C. And looking at those wild customer acquisition cost numbers that fintechs and insurtechs used to have like some years ago, the investors just do not have any appetite to fund those, those business models anymore. Do you think at some level that's better for companies like yours, like I said, that have been around for a while, right? Because you've already had all these learnings about what the lifetime value is, what the cost of customer acquisition is. You've already learned all this stuff. You've already been out in the market for six years. So again, competing against you from zero is going to be super hard, no? Yeah, uh, without any previous experience or learnings, or even like, you know, let's say you're a startupper who has had three exits or three, three bankruptcies or whatever without this experience today it's extremely extremely hard and i also do believe that these companies that survive today for the next yeah. one or two years will flourish in the next five years uh, because they have such a big advantage uh, also like time-wise I, I don't think you're wrong so as we come into the end of 2023 and for god's sake so every year i say this i cannot believe it's the middle of december I just cannot believe it. Can you? Like, really, it's December 15th. I cannot believe this. What do you think is coming? And we can spend as much time as you want talking about artificial intelligence and its impact on insurance, but what else do you think is coming? What are these emerging technologies you're going to drive? What's happening in 2024? Yeah, I mean, I cannot, uh, I cannot mention AI or machine learning because right. there will be a massive adoption of those technologies. Um, and and um, I think uh, what is getting uh, impacted the most is everything related to customer experience. Okay. And literally customers will shift towards companies that provide instant and most convenient services, um, usually powered by AI and machine learning. Of course, uh, there will be a massive impact towards uh, fraud detection because also what we see in our business that um, there are already technologies and, and uh, mechanisms available to instantly uh, minimize uh, uh, fraud. 
and and to de detect fraud and and that would be definitely a heavy impact of course all the like policy issuing and and uh, agreement and contract management that will be affected by that but i think the the majority the biggest impact we will see is is everything related to customer interaction customer experience and i'm 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 glad to see that the customers will win a lot in 2024 for sure if you want to talk about customer experience, right, the first thing that comes to mind is not just the policy and the pricing, but everybody yeah. says that the rubber hits the road when a claim happens. So do you, exactly, want, to, because, do you want to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about how artificial intelligence will impact what a claims experience would look like and what you think that that should look like as well, just based on the stuff you've already said? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, insurance is a product that, you know, um, you don't use it when you purchase it. You use it when um, when uh, when when you're in trouble, right? Yeah. This is when you actually start using uh, using the service. And usually, like every insurance company by now has nailed how to sell you a policy in seconds or in few minutes. So right. um, it's it's easy, right? But the ugly truth comes out in the claims handling. And um, kind of how the whole industry today treats its customers is that um, everybody is, is a fraudster. This is how we treat people, because this is why we ask so much information. This is why we ask all the documentation. Uh, this is why we ask uh, third party, I don't know, valuations on what happened, how much it costs, whether it was real or not real, because we are suspicious of everybody. And my, my understanding of how this service should work like is that, that yes, we know that there might be like uh, one or two percent of people who want to commit fraud, but we cannot punish 98 percent of the people right. because those one or two percent are, 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 you know, acting in a bad faith. Right. And this is how insurance should work that, you know, that we trust people. People, people are honest because the majority of them are. And we should only be tackling, you know, really corner cases uh, where we see that there's clearly something wrong. There's there's uh, there's like not enough information or the information doesn't match what is being said and, and, and provided. So in those th these cases, we should actually, you know, interfere and ask for more questions. But you know our our understanding of the the experiences that um, we are going to be launching in the beginning of the year uh, automized claims handling first for uh, mobile phones we have 6 years of data uh, for mobile phone damages we know that vast majority of them are uh, damaged for the screen right yep. it's it's a low cost damage and what we want to create is basically, if you have Insmos mobile insurance, you drop your phone, you submit the claim, and in um, in, a, in two minutes of time, you will have the money on your bank account. Yeah. And this is how it should work. And and the um, AI should detect, you know, the damage to your phone, whether it's the same phone that is what that was insured. It should analyze the data from the invoices and so on and so forth, and make a decision and basically pay out the. Uh, the cost uh, to the customer. So these are the kind of experience we want to deliver up to the point that when there is time to handle a claim, we don't ask any any more documentation from you. Maybe you just tell us what happened. And with uh, the help of appropriate technology, we are able to, to detect whether you're lying or not, right? Do you think that? Do you think that's possible? Because like in a phone, it's a really good example, right? Yes. You're just making me think. So. Mm -hmm. 
I dropped my phone at the beginning of last year and just over the rest of the year, just the screen just disappeared. So I bought myself a new phone, mm-hmm. but it didn't fall that far. Now there's an accelerometer in the phone and a bunch of other sensors in there that can tell if you actually threw it or if it just kind of fell, right? It should know the difference. Mm-hmm. Are you using this mm-hmm. kind of alternative data or thinking about using this kind of alternative data to determine whether there's fraud there or not in real time? Because now you're talking about a sort of parametric experience for users that is super useful, yeah? One thing about insurance and calculating insurance risk is that there will always be people who act in bad faith. Sure. But, you know, um, your whole portfolio will not be throwing uh, phones on the ground, on the walls or wherever, right? There is like few few uh, percentage of people who do that. And it's usually calculated in the insurance premium or inside the risk so we can, with the help of technology, uh, mitigate this risk and implementing different fraud prevention mechanisms and, you know, face recognition when you tell us what happened and so on and so forth. And, and whenever we see something suspicious, we can always ask more questions. But for the vast majority of our portfolio and clients, we should offer experience that is instant. You get your money immediately. And this is how insurance can be actually uh, valuable to you. This is how this experience and this service is something that you will actually enjoy and recommend to your friends and family. Because uh, people nowadays, they're not brand loyal anymore. All, how people yeah. make purchase decisions. Yeah. How how they make purchase decisions are all about like what I hear from my friends and family, right? Yeah, and also it's more, the service is way more important than it's ever been. Do you think that technology can help us make the case, particularly when it comes to fraud, that there are certain people, like you use this term acting in not in good faith. I think about this a lot, actually. Like I've never met somebody who's acted in bad faith once. Do you know what I mean? Like there are just certain people that are just Mm -hmm. acting in bad faith constantly. And there has to be a way to tell Mm -hmm even with alternative data, and I haven't determined yet what that data is, maybe they're not even insurable. I don't know. We can make that argument as well. But you know what I mean, right? Like the the guy or the gal who is operating in good faith is almost always operating in good faith. There's got to be a way to figure that out using AI, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it's already uh, possible today. Like if I look at the data that we have over the past six years, like for some people, there are patterns, um, there sure. are patterns of missing monthly payments, for example. So, for example, if you're missing a five-euro monthly payment for your mobile phone insurance for six months in a row, <laughs> you can have difficult times in your life. But uh, if this is a pattern or we see a pattern that, you know, people is, uh, are insuring multiple mobile phones and with all of them, like in a short period of time, something is happening. So we want to use all of this data. And we also want to implement the dynamic pricing, which means that yeah. if there are red flags um, in your profile, then you will be paying a higher uh, premium than, for example, me, if I don't have any red flags, right? Right, right. Like if I've never missed a bill payment and if you've never seen me throw my phone and there's no really bad alternative data about, data about me, yeah. why am I paying a higher premium? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's... And it's hard for me to say this just because I'm so much older than you are, but do you feel like there's a generational change in the way that people are perceiving the usefulness of insurance? And if so, how can you mitigate that? Yeah, so um, uh, what I have definitely seen is that the older generation is definitely much more risk averse, meaning that uh, especially in Central Europe, they are 
they are overcovered, right? They are yeah. overinsured. They have insurance policy for everything. And there's also differences uh, uh, between like uh, geo different uh, countries in, in Europe, for example, I come from Estonia. Right. We only insure what is mandatory and we insure when the damage has already happened. And our average, <laughs> we spend on average 200 euros per year for insurance compared to Germany or Central Europe that spends 2,400 euros per year for insurance. They're overinsured and so on and so forth. So I think this is the kind of mentality for a little bit older generation. And if we look at the demographics, the younger people get, the less they are educated about the need for insurance. And now it's the question that, I would say, how do we make insurance sexy for a younger audience? Yeah, and it's all about yeah. finding the key to communicate and educate them. And what I, what, how we are communicating insurance right now is that for us, insurance is a way to uh, protect your financial freedom, because everybody's dreaming of freedom, financial freedom, flexibility, and so on and so forth, living a free life nowadays. And insurance has a big part in, in creating a financial freedom because uh, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how much money you have saved. If you haven't mitigated risks, you know, your 20,000 euros on your bank account can be gone in one day if you crash your car and you don't right. have insurance right. or you create some damage in your rental home and you don't have insurance. It's gone. So for us and how we communicate this is that insurance is... Uh, is one of the keys to financial freedom. Do you think this requires like a rethinking of the way that the products are designed, right? Because maybe the yes. things that are getting insured are, or the, the products that were designed to insure specific things are insuring the wrong products now because this generational change, right? Like I always had a desktop computer. My daughter will never have that. Do you know what I mean? So maybe, and that's just one example, but do you think that product design needs to change as well in the context of this and I'm curious if you think that the AI and the ML can help fix that too. Yeah. So unless you have a gamer daughter, you, she probably doesn't have a PC uh, on her table. Right. So, but <laughs> there's there's plenty of those young people too. So PC is not dead. No, I know that. I know. And... I was just making using that as an analogy, right? It's just that there are certain things that younger generations do that older people are not thinking about. Right. So maybe yeah, the product exactly. design also has to consider what the product is that, that's being insured as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, definitely, you know, as you see today, uh, more and more young people work as freelancers and yeah. there is completely different risks because these people, you know, they are like one man companies. So they have their own assets. They have have their own computers they have they have their own liability also uh when it comes to providing work with a so certain quality they are afraid of losing income so income protection could be something that is interesting so they are like these one-man shows that uh, have completely different uh, set of risks that need to be covered um and also like people living nowadays working remotely uh working um, abroad and so on and so forth so um this kind of lifestyle uh, is also a different type of risk and whatever you're carrying around when you're traveling and working abroad and remotely and so on and so forth so all of those things have to be protected your health has to be protected and right. again like accidents liabilities and so on so it's definitely a new set of risks that we're dealing with and not to forget about uh, all the risks that uh, happen in the internet of course cyber risks and everything 
losing your identity, different cyber attacks, and and these are new types of risks that have to be have to be covered. So when I was my daughter's age, right, I worked at companies like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, and they just provided group insurance for the entire company. And it was very straightforward, right? We filled out a bunch of forms and they just provided group insurance for us and we all kind of fell into the same cohort. But you do bring up this interesting thing that I think about a lot and that is if I work in a specific industry but I work alone, there are another 100,000 people just like I am. But none of us can get access to a group policy because there aren't enough of us in the same place or in the same company. Do we need to address that as well? And can technology help us address that by creating kind of these communities or cohorts that can then get group insurance at the same level that I used to be able to get when I was a kid. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, uh, you know, I also do see that in the future, there's kind of like a platform where you can sign up, right? Yeah. And and you are working in a specific area, you're a specialist or, or an entrepreneur of some sort of, and you are kind of creating this pool of risk for an insurance company and, and insurance companies can bid on that and, and provide the, the, the coverage. So that's that's definitely something that's, and of course, this whole experience, again, has to be um, instant, super easy, really easy to understand. And, 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 and what is most important is that when you used to work in, in a company that provided you this insurance coverage, did you actually understood that you're covered no. against something? No. Yeah, exactly. Not. So... That's that's my whole point, that even if the insurance was there, uh, you probably didn't use the service because you didn't maybe, even if you knew it was there, you didn't know uh, what it is, what, no what it actually provides me. It was just another nice, uh, you know, thing Benefit. in your package or a tick in the box. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this, yeah. These are our perks and so on and so forth. But if people do not understand what this is about, it doesn't add any value to our lives. Yeah, there's so many things to talk about this. I was actually talking to a guy in India who runs a platform. You know, we used to use the plumber when I was a kid as an example of a guy who like had his own business, right? There were plenty of plumbers around. Nobody worked at a plumbing company, right? So the plumber just worked in this local area and he would fix it. It was probably mm -hmm. really hard for that guy and it was mostly guys to get insurance. But yeah. today that plumber is now a content creator and that content creator sits on a platform and I was talking to a guy in India who built a platform that has, I think about two, because India is a big country, right? It has 200,000 people on the platform that creates content for big brands in India and globally. And the, it wasn't the first thing I asked him, but maybe the last thing I asked him, I was like, do you provide insurance? Because he has exactly that platform with all of those mm -hmm. people pooled in one place that are doing the same thing together. And he was like, that's a good idea, actually. But don't you think that's going to happen for, for those type of, I don't want to say gig workers per se, but like for those types of freelancers, do you see that happening as well? Mm -hmm, definitely. Because there are already initiatives today that are focused to, uh, uh, on the gig economy. Um, you know, we can see uh, dedicated providers for, let's say, Uber drivers or or bulk drivers or or carriers, right? Uh, and uh, we de we also see initiatives for the small SMEs and micro companies, right? So that you as an in uh, as an entrepreneur can go and check out easily for an insurance product. There is I have not spotted yet, you know, initiatives today which enables to create the pool and also enjoy a discount because you're in a pool right. and the risk is shared, right? right? 
but uh, it's definitely going to happen. It's, uh, you know, an easy access for an insurance company to hundreds of thousands or millions of customers immediately just by engaging with one platform. Right. I mean, you and I could spend hours just talking about the way the future of work is going to change. I mean, you're not doing the job that you expected to be doing when you graduated from university, right? So, and I think there are millions of other people, if not hundreds of millions of other people, just like you and just like I am, who aren't doing that thing, who used to be in a pool, but are no longer in that pool. So they're insurable, but they're just not organized in a way that makes sense. It has to happen. Yeah. It just has to happen. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I fully agree with you. Okay. What else do you want to tell me about before I let you go? We were talking about a little bit uh, the the new technologies, AI and machine machine learning, and what one thing that has been really really close to my heart, and is actually a big this discussion point right now in different conferences is also that how is it going to affect the jobs, right? Because um, we can see, especially in 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 corporates, that you know. Every time you bring up um, a topic about new technologies, it creates a massive sense of or massive job insecurity Fear, right, in yeah. people. And this Fear. is also um, often like why big corporates are reluctant to um, adopting new um, technologies is that, you know, but what will happen to, to the people? Are we going to be letting go now thousands or uh, tens of thousands of people and so on and so forth? And I think this is also... Um, massive blocker for innovation in insurance right now. Okay. And I have uh, discussed with this with a lot of colleagues from from big insurance companies. And I think here the key is is all about the communication because I do not see that AIs or these technologies will replace people. It would be something that will be enhancing a lot of the experience for customers and also people working in the insurance companies. And it now creates jobs that are more meaningful. If yeah. we can give away all the mundane tasks to machines, robots, and so on and so forth, this means that our people can create more value to the customers, to our partners, to the company itself. So um, I don't see um, that you know the human element is going to go anywhere. It's just that there will be a shift in the tasks and the jobs and um, mm. humans are expected to deliver more value than ever and and all the mundane tasks will be delegated to to machines so my entire career at morgan stanley was, and goldman sachs was based on using technology to take away the mundane tasks i did that that that's what made me famous at work and it never got me fired mm -hmm. And I think that this was true for everybody with whom I worked. And I think you're 100% right. The technology is there to, to supplement people that are really great and enable them and enhance them to do better things and to do things that are much more engaging for them and much more fun. And if you can take away the, the mundane tasks, you, could, you can unlock a whole bunch of new ideas from people that weren't possible before because they were stuck doing the same thing every single day. And all I did at work was take the machine and just say, do this stuff I don't really want to do and let me think about things that I want to do. So I'm 100% mm -hmm. convinced that technology is an enabler. It's not something that's going to get a bunch of thousands and 10,000s of people fired. What do you think? 
Yeah, exactly. But the key here is that if we do not educate our people, Agreed. like what are those uh, technologies and how they will be working for us and uh, how they will enhance our careers and how they actually enable us to learn something in a completely new field and become an expert. Because how I see this is that if I train my people today uh, regarding AI and machine learning, and they will become one of the best in the insurance field. Absolutely. If we exit Insmo, let's say in five to seven years time, these people will have thousands of you know job offers in their LinkedIn every day, just because what they know, right? So, and, and, and I think we have to educate our people uh, much more. Um, in startup, it's relatively easy because we are all about tech, but um, it's it's a bit sad to see for me that in larger companies where there's all those financial means available, right, right to create this innovation yeah. in a large scale. So what the main blocker is that people inside start blocking it, and and um, otherwise, yeah, it it would be it would be a massive massive value, especially for the big ones. And uh, yeah, and and I also see that the heads of innovations or the innovation leaders also do not want to be the bad guys again coming out with a new technology and and making everybody afraid you know okay do they have a job tomorrow i am going to thank you now miri savolainen the founder ceo you call yourself a troublemaker but i'm just going to call you a brilliant thinker at insmo i really appreciate you doing this today i hope you enjoyed this as much as i did this was awesome absolutely thank you so much michael